and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've joined us today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Newscientist.com reports that antidepressants leaking into waterways could make crayfish bolder. Oh, huh. okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, initially I was like, oh, antidepressants in the water system, that's bad. And then I was like, crayfish boulder. You said it like that sounds like a good thing, but actually that doesn't sound good either. That's like... <laughs> Well, the article goes in to say that trace amounts of antidepressants that go into rivers and lakes could be making crayfish behave more boldly and disturbing their ecosystems. So it does seem like, okay, maybe this isn't a great thing. Right. That, you know, antidepressants leaking into waterways, not a whole lot of silver lining there from at least from any angle perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have been getting more and more evidence over the years that various medications can end up in waterways because obviously we are excreting them in our urine. Mm -hmm. And this is mostly antidepressants known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs with almost one in eight people taking them in the U.S. Hmm. Not sure when they were getting that data because this post-corona world, I'm going to guess that number is probably a little bit higher at this point. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Regardless, uh, Lindsay Reisinger at the University of Florida and her colleagues wondered if they would make crayfish less fearful in the same way that these same drugs make humans less anxious because anxiety and fear are mm -hmm. siblings. So her team looked at crayfish behavior in two artificial water streams. One had trace levels of an SSRI called citalopram. And when the medicine was present, the animals were nearly twice as fast to emerge from their shelters to explore their surroundings and also spent nearly twice as long looking for food. So hmm. the animal's greater boldness could have several effects. Like obviously it could make them more vulnerable to predators like fish and wading birds. And while some crayfish species are classed as invasive in some areas, there are other species that are endangered because, of course, why would it uniformly apply? Mm -hmm. Right. Hashtag not all crayfish. <laughs> so having some crayfish spending more time looking for their food, like algae and leaf litter, could also reduce the amount of this organic matter in streams, which could then have other cascading effects on ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So the article, short and sweet, ends with a little to-do action for the rest of us. So remember, you should never dispose of unwanted pharmaceuticals into household drains, but return them to pharmacies, which is nice, but doesn't address the whole, well, we're still excreting it yeah, out of our bodies. Yeah, it's still be in the waterways. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, if we made some crayfish a little happier, like... Like maybe they were all depressed and now they feel, right? you know, happy and in control of their lives and able to go out and get some <laughs> algae. So maybe we will bond with them as pets and this could be an important step towards their domestication sure. in human households. It you could, never know. That's right. I choose to remain optimistic, but that could just be the SSRIs talking. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled Funazushi, the fermented predecessor of modern sushi. Hmm. 
Yeah, so I hope you've got a snack or you might want to grab one now because uh, we're going to talk about sushi this entire article. Awesome. It's a little bit lengthy. Uh, so for the past 18 generations, one family has preserved a 400-year-old recipe showing how sushi once tasted. And it doesn't use raw seafood, but fish aged for three years. Ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> your, your warnings about snacks are seeming very early because I, I, I don't feel like I'm going to need it after I'm talking about three-year-old fish. It sounds that way at first, but once we get into it, you're like, oh, okay. okay. All right. All right. So on any fine day in spring, you can find a Mariko Kitamura and her husband Atsushi at their shop Kitashina in the small Japanese town of Takashima making sushi. And with the dexterity and speed you'd expect from sushi chefs, they scrape off the fish's scales with a knife, remove its gills, and carefully angle a skewer down its throat to remove its innards without penetrating its flesh. But what happens next is truly unexpected, unless you read the article title. Uh, <laughs> they pack the fish with salt, layer them in a wooden tub, weigh the lid down with 30 kilo stones, and leave them to cure for two years. Ooh. Each fish is then thoroughly rinsed, dried in the sun for a day, and fermented for one more year in cooked rice before it's ready to be eaten. Wow. It's the predecessor of what the world now knows as sushi, the original sushi, called narezushi, or fermented sushi. Mm -hmm. It's believed to have arrived in Japan at the country's ancient capital of Nara sometime in the 8th century. Unlike modern sushi, which typically includes ocean seafood, narazushi was made, and still is in small pockets of Japan, with pretty much anything that swims in freshwater, including tiny loach, ayu, which is a small sweet fish, and eel. But the kind of narazushi Kitashina makes is much rarer and is considered the true prototype of sushi, and it is called funazushi after the type of fish used, funa or carp. Carp is the king of freshwater fish in Japan, with the most prized being Japanese Crucian carp, or Nigoro Buna, which is the original type of carp used to make funazushi and the kind Kitashina features. It's a wild, rich-tasting species that's found only in Lake Biwa, Japan's largest lake and one of the oldest lakes in the world. Hmm. So Kitamura, who attended the Kyoto Culinary Institute, took over the family business in 2013 when her family was ready to retire, partly because of her interest in food, but more importantly, to save the business from literally dying out. The beneficial microorganisms that have thrived in her family's traditional kiyoke wooden tubs for centuries would die if the tubs were ever empty. Mm. And today, funazushi has become a luxury food across much of Japan, with Kitashina being the shop at which to buy it because of its refined, mellow flavor. That's in part thanks to her grandfather, who, despite sushi's growing popularity, continued to stick to Kitashina's 400-year-old recipe of long fermentation and changing the rice once during the process. He also introduced the practice of serving it on a bed of sake leaves, making the dish even more luxurious. Mm. And Kitamura's father, in turn, created the Tomoe style of beautifully presenting funazushi as a fan fashioned from the slices of a whole fish. Kitashina's funazushi is now featured on the menus of some of the most exclusive ryote or traditional high-end Japanese eateries and other top restaurants in Tokyo. Chef Takumi Murata of the L'Hotel de Hie serves Kitashina's funazushi with wine jelly as an appetizer in the hotel's main restaurant. 
And I've never even heard of wine jelly or had it before, so uh, learning a lot this article. I mean, I imagine you just put some gelatin into wine. It's like a gummy, but it's made with wine instead of juice, right? That's true. I guess, yeah, wow, that's like yeah, a classy <laughs> jello shot. That's how they could fix communion. Because there's a whole problem with like people spreading germs where they all drink from the same cup. If they made uh-huh. communion gummy Communion bears, shots. Then you just hand them, yes, jello shots in church. That'd be amazing. All right, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, Compared to Narazushi's millennia-old history, the sushi we eat today is a mere footnote. Technically called Hayazushi, or fast sushi, literally, (laughs) it was created in Edo, modern-day Tokyo, in the late 18th century as a fast-food version of Narazushi to meet the needs of the city's busy people. That's a big leap. Like, you go from, we're going to ferment it for three years, to we're going to cut it open and serve it raw. Like, there's no (laughs) in-between of, okay, we'll cook it for 20 minutes. Like, nothing. Extremes or go home. Yeah, it was the result of Japan's modernization and just the need to scale food. And you have those trade-offs that come with Mm -hmm. that. So the newly bottled seasonings of fermented rice vinegar and soy sauce were used to recreate the essential sour, salty, and rich taste of funazushi in the fresh seafood that was caught in Tokyo Bay. First, rice vinegar was added to cooked rice to speed up the fermentation process. Later, freshly cooked rice was simply soaked with rice vinegar. So we've <laughs> kind of gone down in steps a little bit along the way. This makes regular sushi sound absolutely crap. I know, right? <laughs> it's no longer impressive at all. Yeah, like you're like, what is this incredibly expensive raw garbage I've been eating? Right, they put zero effort into this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I want to try it, but probably won't get to for quite a while. <laughs> Either next time I go to Tokyo or in about three years. Right, right, so... right. You start making it in your backyard. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Neighbors will love you. Yeah. <laughs> the game changer, however, was soy sauce, which began to be mass produced in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And it Initially, it was used to marinate the seafood toppings for a few hours to prevent them from spoiling and also to make them more appetizing. As the fresh quality of the seafood improved, sushi was then just served raw with soy sauce as a condiment. Mm -hmm. But even as chefs rediscover the potential of weeks and months aged sushi, Kitamura is still staying well ahead of them. In a corner of Kitashina's storeroom, she has a small wooden tub of funazushi that has been fermenting for eight years and counting. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. at some point, doesn't it just become bacteria? Like Because that's what <laughs> fermentation is, is it's eating the, the food you give it and putting out byproducts. But at some point, there's no fish left. It's just... Mm-hmm. A soupy jelly. Mm. <laughs> Fishy cheese soup. That's right. <laughs> I guess y'all can put those snacks away. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. So we've sort of known it was on the horizon for a while, but it looks like a permanent human presence on the moon is starting to be a sooner rather than later kind of proposition. And to that end, this next article is called The Lunar Lantern Could Be a Beacon for Humanity on the Moon. Get it? Beacon? Lantern? Mm -hmm. Uh, Headline writers. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) the Lunar Lantern is the name for a comprehensive lunar habitat currently on display at the 17th International Architecture Exhibition in Venice, Italy. The project was spearheaded by ICON, which calls itself an advanced construction company, and was designed through a collaboration between two architectural firms, the Bjark Ingels Group, or BIG, and Space Exploration Architecture, or Search Plus. So both companies have worked on lunar and Martian concepts before, and Search Plus in particular is known for its human-centric designs. Their past work with NASA includes the Human Habitability Division at the Johnson Space Center here in Texas, 
and the Moon to Mars Planetary Autonomous Construction Technologies, or MPACT, team. There's a lot of acronyms in this article, I'll be honest. (laughs) (laughs) They have also won several open competitions in the NASA 3D Printed Habitat Challenge, including their Mars Ice House and Mars X House V2. All of which is to say, these folks know what they're doing, and they're getting to the point where their designs are being truly finalized and won't be theoretical anymore. You know, for a long time, these things have been sort of an artist's rendition of or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this lunar lantern thing is looking like it's really going to be the thing we're going to build up there when astronauts go back to the moon in October of 2024. Whoa. So if you want to judge for yourself how visually pleasing and human-centric it is, there's a full video in the article that's the same one being shown to attendees this week at the architectural exhibition in Italy. But there's also a lot of stuff under the hood worth discussing because this thing is truly a full combination of form and function. So first off, the entire structure is going to be situated atop a base isolator, which is a sort of plate that can slide laterally and counteract the forces of moonquakes, which are apparently quite common. Unlike on Earth, where nearly all quakes are caused by plate tectonics, moonquakes are usually caused by sudden dramatic changes in temperature as the surface passes in and out of sunlight without an insulating atmosphere to slow down the heat exchange. They can also be a side effect of meteorite impacts, and there's also a predictable monthly cycle of moonquakes caused by tidal interactions with the Earth. So apparently the moon is shaking all the time, which I had no idea. Wow, yeah. Me neither. The lunar lantern also features something called a Whipple shield, which is a double-layered latticework shell that, to be perfectly honest, makes the whole thing look a bit like a pineapple. Ooh. It's tall and it's got the little scales on it. It really it looks like a pineapple minus the top bit. So the Whipple Shield will protect against ballistic impact from both micrometeorites and ejecta, which are bits of detritus that flies outward when a larger impact happens nearby. So the big thing misses you, but then you've got all this dust flying at you at super speeds. Mm -hmm. It will also block the extreme heat caused by direct exposure to the sun. And speaking of ejecta, one of the big engineering problems that all habitat designs have struggled with so far is the overall dustiness of the moon's surface. Every takeoff and landing is going to spew up this thick cloud of regolith, or moon dirt, which will travel farther and linger longer than we'd like thanks to the moon's low gravity. So the Lunar Lantern's landing pads have this cool design that allows for that dust to actually be captured and collected, at which point it can be shuttled over to the 3D printing construction robots, which will be using regolith as their source material. So it doesn't just solve the problem of floating dust. It serves as this steady mining supply for habitat repairs. Yeah. And finally, there is the unique lighting system, which is where the Lunar Lantern gets its name. Instead of using electricity or any other form of energy to keep the lights on, the plan is to lay down long fiber optic cables that trace all the way down to the south pole of the moon, which is under constant sunlight. So the light enters the cables and is redirected for free all the way back to the habitat, where a small energy-efficient system will simply block the light on and off on a regular schedule to create a reliable nighttime, independent of what the sun is doing outside. They even say they can modulate the color and intensity of the light to create a seasonal rotation of summer radiance versus a softer winter glow. So Uh all I heard was moon rave. (laughs) That's right. You can flick the lights on and off really quickly and hope that nobody has epilepsy. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This article does have mention of genitalia. So if you have Mm. sensitive listeners, you may want to skip ahead or hit pause. But (laughs) if you are not sensitive, boy, howdy, do we got a good one for you today. Uh, This one comes from Live Science. And I'm just going to get right into it. 
Scientists have unraveled the mystery of the echidna's bizarre four-headed penis. I heard about this and have oh. not read about it. I'm very curious. <laughs> I was really hoping that everybody would come into this completely unknowing and shocked. But this is new information to me. There you this go. was also new information to me, too. Considerably four times as much in life. <laughs> well, the subhead kind of sums it up really nicely. It is one of nature's weirdest wangs. And after reading the article, <laughs> I am inclined to agree. So... The echidna. Okay, they live in Australia. There are four species of echidna that, along with platypuses, make up a unique group known as monotremes, right? Mm -hmm. These are the smallest of the three mammal groups, and these are the mammals that lay eggs like birds and fish, but also produce milk like other mammals. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot about this group remains a mystery. They're super weird, according to how we have cleanly categorized every other creature in the animal (laughs) kingdom. But scientists in Australia have uncovered the mystery behind the bizarre four-headed echidna penis by creating an advanced 3D model of the peculiar organ. And Hmm. before you ask, yes, there is a picture Uh in the article. (laughs) If that weren't weird enough, only two of the heads are used during each erection. And echidnas can alternate between which two they use. <laughs> Only two. Two sounds like too many. Like you're, you're, <laughs> It seems like a, a one-at-a-time kind of thing unless I don't know something about the female echidna. <laughs> nope. I don't think there is anything else like this in the animal universe. And, and that may be conjecture, but the article does a pretty good job of saying, no, yeah. this is definitely unusual. I think so, that's fair to say. Yeah, I think we would have yeah. heard about it if we... <laughs> exactly. So the reason Researchers said in a statement, quote, exactly how echidnas do this has always been a mystery. But for the first time, we have untangled what is going on anatomically. In addition to their distinctive shape, echidna penises are also unusual because unlike those of most other mammals, they are used only for sexual reproduction, not urination. When they need to urinate, echidnas use a cloaca, which is a multi-purpose opening for urinating, defecating, and in females, egg laying. And so when they're not in use, echidna penises are retracted inside their bodies and emerge through the cloacal opening when erect. Okay. Huh. You still with me? I'm trying. Okay. I'm trying to picture it. I'm, I'm working on it. The picture really helps. I looked at it. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's 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 almost adorable and definitely not as horrific as the text is making it sound. Right, Wayne. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, yeah. <laughs> I think Wayne feels very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> it's just a, there's a lot going on. There is a lot going picture, on, and and what's know? amazing is that picture doesn't tell the whole story because. In addition to their unconventional genitalia, echidnas' sperm are also unconventional and have the astonishing ability of being able to work as a team. <gasps> oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't. So, they're hurting. I know. They're like... <laughs> <laughs> they are working together, y'all. So according to a quote from Jane Fenelon, the lead author of the study and a reproductive biologist at the University of Melbourne, Quote, ejaculated semen samples contained bundles of up to 100 sperm that are joined at the tip of their heads so they form a sphere-like shape. And these bundles have been observed (laughs) to swim progressively forward in a vigorous and coordinated pattern, and bigger bundles seem to swim better than individual sperm or smaller bundles. They're combining their powers like Voltron. (laughs) Like that's... It's Voltron sperm. That's exactly... (laughs) Yeah, you're exactly right. And very few animal sperm are known to do this. 
And the reason behind it is unknown. So right. there's still a whole bunch of things where we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> to understand more about how echidna penises work, the team created 3D models of their penises using specialized CT scans. And they say specialized because normal CT scans only detect hard tissue like bones. So the researchers stained the penis with iodine to enable the soft tissues to be mapped out. Okay. That allowed them to create a 3D model of the whole echidna penis and its important internal structures in order to see how it operates. So what this model revealed is that the urethral tube, which the sperm moves through, splits below the heads into two separate tubes, which each split again to allow for sperm to be delivered to each of the four heads. This makes sense, but the finding did not explain why only two of the heads are used during sex. So initially, they thought they would find some sort of valve mechanism that controls one-sided action seen in echidna. But instead of a valve, they found it was actually the type of tissue within the penis that was responsible. Hmm. So mammalian penises consist of two main types of erectile tissue. There's the corpus cavernosum and the corpus spongiosum. And both tissues will fill with blood during an erection, but the role of the corpus cavernosum is predominantly to provide a rigid structure to the penis, whereas the corpus spongiosum keeps the urethral tube open so sperm can pass through. Hmm. So each tissue starts off as two different structures at the base of the penis. And in most mammals, the two corpus spongium structures merge into one, while the cavernosum remains separated. But in echidnas, the cavernosum was merged while the spongiosum remained separate. So this separate spongiosum tissue is what allows echidnas to erect each half or pair of heads independently from each other. So it is something they're doing willfully, <laughs> like it's under their control to a certain degree? Yes, but we have no idea why. Okay. Um, the researcher <laughs> is even quoted as saying, we're not really sure why this is beneficial to the echidna males, but we think it could be an advantage for male-male competition for females. So they did a separate experiment and the researchers found that by alternating pairs pairs of heads, the individual could ejaculate 10 times in a row without pause. Oh, well, you know, sometimes you got to get a hard day's work in. Like, you know, that was the pun I was hoping someone would make. Yeah, I mean, like, it sounds like the echidna penis is fractal. So if you have a big enough echidna, you could go up to 8, yeah. 16 valves, 32. You, you know, know, I, mean, you I know feel like I've seen that hentai before. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <sighs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org, and it's titled The Anatomical Machines of Naples Alchemist Prince. Ooh. So we're still very much in the realm of weird bodies. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> so to set the stage, two skeletons stand in a chapel in Naples. Their bones are knit together with an intricate web of veins and arteries that crawl over their ribs and skulls like gray lace. These were the anatomical machines of Prince Raimondo de Sangro, an alchemist, a Freemason, inventor, and military historian. And for centuries, eerie legends have swirled around these two figures. Mm -hmm. The rumor goes that they were once the prince's servants, whom he murdered and transformed into anatomical displays. Ugh. But in 2007, a pair of scholars, Lucia Dacome and Renata Peters, published research revealing that the veins were in fact artificial, an astonishingly complex network of silk, wax, and wire, rather than the preserved remains of a human body. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and I really recommend you check out the images in this article. They're very freaky and sort of weird looking. It's almost like a human body without the flesh, and you have all of these veins and bones and organs in some places. But it was so, so good that we thought for a long time they were real. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. DeSangro's inventions tended toward the spectacular. He developed a method of mixing fireworks that detonated with the sound of birdsong and lit up with an array of new colors, the hues of milk, lemon peels, grass, rubies, and turquoise. Huh. So DeSangro was nothing if not theatrical. At one point, an accidental fire in his laboratory revealed to him the formula for a perpetual lamp fueled by gunpowder mixed with pulverized human skull. Mm, And he knew how to make faux lapis lazuli that was indistinguishable from the real thing and how to bleach sapphires until they looked like diamonds. The floors in his palace were paved not with marble, but with a paste he invented, which hardened into something with the appearance and texture of real stone, Hmm. which made me kind of think, like, do we have that now? Because that sounds cool. Right? (laughs) So then there are the more dubious discoveries. DeSangro claimed to have found a means of extracting blood from manure. Hmm. He claimed to have reduced river crabs to ash and then resurrected them with infusions of ox blood Hmm. and to have caused fennel plants to grow again from their cinders and some part of the prince's mystique comes from superstitious rumors of murder and black magic and this is perhaps most clear in the legend of DeSangro's death which recounts that before DeSangro died he had himself hacked into pieces uh, and placed <gasps> in a chest but oh. the chest was opened too soon while the pieces of the body were still wielding together mm. he awoke tried to rise <gasps> then shrieked and fell to pieces uh, once again. Uh, oh my gosh, how horrific. So, yeah, but you know, whether or not that happened. <laughs> right, totally yeah. normal guy. Probably did yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely was the kind of guy who would have that sort of story told about him, which uh-huh. makes him definitely unique, if not a pyromaniac who just yeah. also happened to make ridiculous <laughs> claims about bringing things back from ash. Yeah. <laughs> And DeSangro's friend Giovanni Vincenzo Antonio Ganganelli, later to become Pope Clement XIV, <laughs> wrote that the prince's alchemical skill was powerful enough to create a second world from the first. <laughs> it was a bit of a flim-flam world, however. Uh, wax and wire in the place of veins and arteries, hardened pastes in the place of gemstones, palaces of light that flicker into existence and then go out. Nonetheless, you have to admire his sense of style. In one of his final public appearances, DeSangro stunned the citizens of Naples with a beautiful carriage that traveled not on the street, but over the waves. Mm. It churned along on paddle wheels led by a pair of floating seahorses fashioned out of cork. The alchemist within was nearing the end of his life, suffering from an illness possibly brought on by inhaling the fumes of his own experiments. Could be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But what the Neapolitans saw was just the glittering carriage riding proudly over the waves. So he was a legend. Yeah, he was an artist. He sculpted these things. I mean, basically, if he were alive today, he'd work for Disney. He'd be making models (laughs) and, you know, (laughs) working in the Hall of Presidents, except without any skin. Like, (laughs) 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 I see him as being like an entrepreneur who's at Burning Man every year. Oh, for sure. That's true. Also, he would obviously also be a magician. Right. Like, that's what he was back then. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming he was smart enough not to claim that he could bring things back from the dead, because unless he was doing it as part of his show, people would be like, oh, okay. And then he'd go visit a doctor and then there would be no more magic show. (laughs) Uh Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from Julia Carmel at the New York Times, and it's called The Big Tuna Sandwich Mystery. And it features a company that unfortunately has had a number of bad press incidents in the last couple of years, the Subway sandwich chain. Aww. You may recall a court in Ireland famously ruled a while back that their bread had too much sugar to be classified as bread. Mm -hmm. And now they are facing a class action suit in the state of California that alleges their tuna salad contains no actual tuna. What? Wow. Yeah. Now, it's worth noting Subway is categorically denying the allegations, saying in a statement that Subway delivers 100% cooked tuna to its (laughs) restaurants, which is mixed with mayonnaise and used in freshly made sandwiches, wraps, and salads that are served to and enjoyed by our guests. (laughs) Thank you, PR. Yes, exactly. But like any good journalist, Julia Carmel wasn't taking their word for it and decided to find out for herself. So she procured what she described as more than 60 inches of Subway tuna from three different (laughs) locations around Los Angeles, which I assume means approximately 10 six-inch subs. Mm -hmm. Then she scraped off the tuna, froze it, and shipped it to a commercial food testing lab. Several labs actually turned down her initial request, citing both technical limitations as well as vague company policies. And the lab that did finally agree to test the tuna for her asked that their name not be used as the lab manager didn't want to jeopardize any opportunities to work directly with America's largest sandwich chain in the future. (laughs) Wow. Mm. But before we get to the results, the article goes surprisingly in-depth into both the history of canned tuna as well as the processing it takes to get from the boat to the store. So at its peak during the 1980s, an estimated 85% of homes had canned tuna in their pantry, after which it began a slow decline that was either due to growing concerns about mercury levels in fish, which is a real thing, or Mm -hmm. if you prefer fake excuses, one New York Times editorial attributed the drop in sales to millennials who, quote, can't be bothered to open and drain the cans. Oh, right, boomer. Yeah, millennial takes a side. I'm not even a millennial, and I find that one really irritating. But Yeah, it's offensive. During the pandemic, however, sales of all shelf-stable foods skyrocketed. And Nielsen Holdings reports that about 700 million cans of tuna were sold in the U.S. last year. The article doesn't have any data on how Subway has fared during COVID, but it does link to another New York Times expose from two years ago in which a Subway franchise inspector admitted to sabotaging certain stores that the head office had decided it wanted to put under new management. So Subway's just got problems out the wazoo. Yeah. But back to the tuna. According to the FDA's seafood list... There are 15 species of nomadic saltwater fish that can be legally labeled as tuna. The most common are skipjack tuna and yellowfin tuna, known in the lab as K. palamis and T. albacares. And these are the two that Subway claims to use. And most of the industry professionals interviewed for this article agree that if Subway's tuna isn't tuna, it's not their fault. They're just buying cans from wholesalers that are labeled tuna, Mm, mm -hmm. and it's the wholesalers who routinely swap out fish for less desirable or more readily available species. Mm -hmm. One study from the early 2010s showed that between 26 and 87 percent of all fish at the store is mislabeled, including not just canned fish, but whole fish behind the counter as well. (gasps) And a lot of that is because biologically, a lot of species are very close and we really, as consumers, cannot tell the difference between a grouper and a cod and a, mm-hmm. you know, monkfish or whatever. And sometimes it's just marketing. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever eaten mahi-mahi. You know, it's like a popular mm-hmm. Hawaiian fish. It didn't used to be named mahi-mahi. It used to be named dogfish. 
and no one was buying it when it was called Dogfish. So they're like, ooh, let's give it a cool Hawaiian name. And now it's one of the biggest sellers. So, wow. you know, if they're tricking us, it's partly because we're annoying and stupid and won't buy normal <laughs> fish. They also have a great quote in the article from a current sandwich artist who says that she and her coworkers have gotten a fair number of questions about the tuna since the lawsuit was filed. Quote, customers will bring it up and we just go, I don't know, what kind of cheese do you want? nice but people are asking this has gotten some publicity so you know what ultimately were the results of the tuna lab test sadly they were unable to find any extractable tuna dna Hmm. (gasps) but the lab spokesman was quick to point out that both the cooking and the canning processes break down proteins making anything in that state very hard to identify in the first place. And a separate investigation by Inside Edition did find tuna DNA in three separate samples of Subway's tuna sandwiches. So at least some Subway franchises are having actual tuna in their tuna sandwiches. Wait, but so by the time it gets to the lab or into our mouths... It's no longer identifiable via lab tests? Well, yeah, by PCR DNA tests, because DNA gets broken down. Because mm. you have to cook it, and you have to shred it, and you tear it off the bone, and then you cook it again, and you put it through the canning process. I see. So it's just fish mash at right. that point. Right. Yeah, there's fish mash. And also, when this woman takes it from Subway, it's also mixed with mayonnaise at that point. Mm. So there's all this egg DNA in there as well. Mm. So. Since the Inside Edition investigation, the plaintiffs have amended their claim and are now alleging only that Subway's tuna salad is not 100% sustainably caught skipjack and yellowfin tuna, which seems like a real loophole. Like, Subway never claimed it was sustainably caught. (laughs) Right. So it feels like there's at least a chance that the whole thing is a publicity scam, just hoping that Subway will give them a settlement rather than going through the (laughs) hassle of a lawsuit and the bad PR. Mm -hmm. As a side note, the photos in this article are bizarre. Like, you normally would expect, you know, a photo of the plaintiffs on their way into court or maybe a staged portrait of the lab guy in front of a bunch of test tubes or whatever. But most of the pictures in this article are just cell phone shots by the author. Like, here's a Ziploc of tuna salad on my kitchen counter. And here's the hand of a UPS guy putting a label on my package. And then the rest are these more symbolic shots, including the one at the header of the article, which are literally just different angles of a wrapped Subway sandwich frozen in a block of ice inside a plastic bucket. Like, it's, it, they're utterly weird. And, like, maybe they were supposed to be artistically cropped and nobody got the memo. I don't know. But I, I was really taken aback by the photos they chose to accompany this otherwise very interesting and New York Times-worthy story. So uh, maybe I'm getting a photographer fired right now. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe that photographer was fired, which is why the journalist had to come up with something right quick. Right, right. At the last second, they were like, uh, could you get some quick pictures of tuna on your canter counter? <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Popular Mechanics is reporting that Magawa, the explosives sniffing rat, has gone into retirement. Aw. Good job, Magawa. That's nice. (laughs) I know, right? And the picture is so cute. He's got like this little like blue ribbon with a little gold medallion. They gave him a little (gasps) medal and everything. Because this humble rodent saved human lives by detecting more than 100 buried mines and other explosives. He's known as one of the most successful bomb-sniffing rats of all time. 
and he is retiring after five years of service. And even though he's only seven, a new generation of trained rodents <laughs> is ready to take his place. <laughs> he's a mentor at this he point. Is. You know, at some point, you got to just step back from the day-to-day -day grind and just share <laughs> your knowledge with the next generation. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, five years for a rat, that's a lifetime, yeah, right? From 2016 to 2021. He did this all over the Cambodian countryside. He's known as a Gambian pouched rat. So these are larger than North American rats. They can often grow up to three feet long. And yes, that does include Whoa. the long whip-like tail, but pretty Still. big, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> That's they're like capybara-sized. That's it huge. is. It is pretty big. And they are native to sub-Saharan Africa. And because they're generally gentle, they are often kept as pets. Hmm. Like most rodents, they have very poor eyesight, but they make up for it with an incredible sense of smell. And so his trainers at the Belgian nonprofit taught him to sniff out military-grade explosives. And so he's basically a living sensor and because he's so little, he doesn't actually trigger them, right? Mm -hmm. He's 2.6 pounds, which is very small, but large for a rat, let's be real. <laughs> right, but not heavy enough to set off the bomb, which is what you want. Exactly right. He's too light to trigger the pressure plate on an anti-personnel mine, and they have a little leash. It's like a little harness that kind of goes over his shoulders. He was able to wander ahead of a human into dangerous territory without worry he might cause an explosion. Mm -hmm. His handlers report he is slowing down, so he's earned a gentle retirement, and and in March, this organization that trains the rats sent 20 newly trained rats to Cambodia and all reportedly passed their sniff test with flying colors. <laughs> Good boys. Well, I hope he gets treated well. Like, I hope they don't put oh, him yeah. in some sort of seedy rat nursing home that doesn't, no. you know, take care of his needs. He he should be getting, like, decadent meals and nice All music, the cheese and... soup he could possibly want. Yes. And good <laughs> games of bingo. Yes! <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Freeing Oysters from a Parasite's Hold, The Hatpin Peril Terrorized Men Who Couldn't Handle the 20th Century Woman, and This Implant Could One Day Control Your Sleep and Wake Cycles. So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.